You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Thompson Nguyen, who is the founder and CEO of Nearside, a financial services provider and neo-banking platform built on the belief that starting a business should be easier. A data scientist turned entrepreneur, Thompson focused on providing an estimated 60 million entrepreneurs, micro SMBs, freelancers, gigsters, and unbanked individuals with fair financial products, including free small business checking accounts with no monthly overdraft or ATM fees and cash back rewards. We talk about how they give loans. They help you incorporate your business. A lot of good stuff. We also talk about how he was a gig driver in order to learn about working as a gig worker, how he suggests getting started serving customers. He gives out his personal email address to all his customers and to listeners. So stay tuned for that. And hiring a world-class team, how to continually improve yourself. A lot of good stuff here. Please stay tuned. Tavsa, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me, Miles. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, be here virtually. <laughs> yeah. Well, I heard you spent hours and hours driving people around as a gig worker driver yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's right. Uh, before before we started in your side, before I started in your side. I, I was doing research on, you know, basically what, what were the hardest problems that small businesses had? And, you know, small businesses is a, is a very vague term, but, you know, to, to me, it can apply to incorporated LLCs and S-Corps, but it, it also extends to sole proprietors, people who haven't yet started their business or are working for themselves, all the way down to, you know, 1099s and uh, gig drivers who, you know, are independent contractors. So uh, I think in order to better understand sort of like the, the plight of the gig worker or the challenges and, and tribulations they go through from a, from a budgeting perspective or even just being an independent contractor, I, I, I drove for a couple of ride-sharing platforms simultaneously for, gosh, I think it was like two, three weeks. And uh, yeah, that, that was a, an extremely illuminating experience. What did you learn? I, I learned it's extremely hard in that uh, not only do, do you have to have the fortitude to, to basically drive for 10 hours a day, but I, I learned that your, your time becomes the most precious commodity when, when you're working by the hour. And, and so, for example, when I started, I'd take like, you know, like half hour, 45 minute lunches where I would go and like buy a sandwich uh, or something like this. And after two, three days, I realized very, really quickly that, and this was kind of like obvious academically, but I, I really felt it because I, I was living day to day from the wage earnings from, uh, from these gig platforms that uh, any, any minute I wasn't spent driving was a minute I wasn't earning money. And so by like day three, my, my daily ritual consisted of uh, driving the morning shift and then going through the drive-through of like a fast food joint, getting a hamburger and then eating it while I was like driving to like SFO to pick up a long fare. And so, it, it, you know, I, I learned very quickly that I was basically living hour to hour 
as I was constantly trying to optimize and, and maximize my earnings. And then by the time I'd finish around like 10 or 11 PM, I'd, I'd be extremely tired. And so figuring out how to like budget for like gas for maintenance, you know, like uh, needed to like uh, change a tire at some point throughout the ordeal, throughout the experience. Um, uh, you know, it was, it, 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 I, I just didn't have the energy by the time I'd finished uh, after like three weeks of driving. So I, I couldn't imagine, I can only imagine how hard it must be for, for gig workers in 1099s you know, doing this day in, day out. Do you think you can make money in these kinds of gig opportunities? I think it's really tough. I, I, I think, you know, for these gig platforms, they'll advertise something like, you know, make up to $30 an hour driving or delivering groceries and, and, and food. And that, that may be true on paper, but what actually happens is that after gas, after maintenance, after tax withholding, remember you're being paid as a 1099 independent contractor. So there's no tax withholding. So once you calculate all of that out, you're, you're actually probably making around like, you know, like 12 to $14. And that's assuming you have like hundred percent utilization. You're in like a busy Metro and there's like a pretty good uh, patronage and the 12, to $13, you know, like whether that's like a fair wage or not is greatly eclipsed by the fact that 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 fact isn't necessarily communicated <laughs> in, in most marketing materials. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's just really hard for people to conceptualize the fact that if you make, you know, like $30 an hour gross after maintenance and, and tax, it, it's actually closer to, you know, a little over half or a little under half. And, and that Delta is where a lot of people sort of get, get caught when, when you're, you're driving, you know, when you're an independent contractor working for gig platforms as your primary means of revenue. Now, when you decided to do this for research, were you already thinking about a FinTech type of solution or were you really going in with a blank slate? I was really going in with a blank slate. I think what I wanted to figure out was that small businesses are probably the majority route to socioeconomic mobility. And even zooming out, like I wanted to work on, I wanted to work on a meaningful problem. You know, like I, I, my first startup was a churn reduction startup that sold to Square in 2016. And at Square, I ran data science and machine learning for Square Capital, which was the small business lending arm at Square. And there I learned about the economic empowerment that Square provides to its small businesses that they work with. And so, you know, the interesting part about, about Square or Block today is that when you, when you make it easier to process credit card payments. And you know, their, their, their mission started as make commerce easy. When, when, you, when you make it easier, you, you actually economically empower people to start a business. You, you've lowered the barrier to entry. And so in that moment, you, you've also made it easier for people to socioeconomically mobilize themselves. And this story is like kind of mirrored in my, my own personal history. You know, like I was born here in the States, but my, my parents were born in Vietnam and my dad uh, immigrated here after the Vietnam War. And my mom, my older sister waited, I think it was like seven years for their visa. And so, you know, basically my dad worked a whole bunch of odd jobs. And by the time they were all here, started like uh, several business ventures and, and, and basically just tried to make it. And that, that small business entrepreneurship was like the only path in front of them to, to socioeconomically mobilize themselves until they were able to, to find uh, service sector jobs. 
So I, I wanted to work on something that that was meaningful uh, to me, and, and that was something that I, I believe was a, a continual problem here in the US. And, and so I started with the premise of how do we just work with small businesses and help them get to where they want to go. And so you were looking for how do these small businesses get where they want to go? How do you improve their chances? How do you go from that to fintech? <laughs> yeah, super broad, right? Get to where they want to go could be getting them incorporated and up and running, or it could be helping them start by giving them their, their initial capital or, you know, basically understanding like what were the next steps in front of them. And after interviewing, honestly, it was like probably hundreds of them realized that a, a couple of common patterns occurred or surface rather. The first was that they, they, all, they were all unhappy with their current business bank account. For, for those small businesses, small business owners who had opened a business bank account with a larger retail bank or maybe even their credit unions, they were seeing high monthly fees, something like $30 monthly fees, unless you maintain a $5,000 balance or something like this. Or they would just snub their nose at like the $30 overdraft fee where maybe like a, like a vendor had mistimed their ACH or something happens, stuff happens, and you know, you're, you're negative $10 for like a day or two, and then you get charged $30 for basically the privilege of being negative. So they didn't like the, the, the fees that they were being charged. They didn't like the lack of customer support. They, they didn't like the non-functionality of their mobile apps, banking mobile apps. And so that was like the clear, consistent message that they weren't happy with their business checking account. The, the second thing that, I, I re, that I've sort of abstracted from all these interviews was that they, they just didn't know what to do to, to start a business. Like if I wanted to sell pizzas and you know, I, I, I make like a killer pizza or something like this, and I start making pizzas and I start selling them, let's just say at the street corner uh, in a park, or you know, maybe out of my, my own house or garage, even in that moment, I know that I probably need some kind of a business license. Do I need to incorporate? What's the point at which I need to incorporate? Do I need insurance if I'm selling this out of my home? If I'm buying a food truck, you know, what does that whole, that whole process look like? And, and how do I actually you know, start selling to people? And so incorporation and even just understanding what are the steps to starting a business was the other abstraction that I realized. And so with that, you know, we started your side on the premise that it, it ought to be easier to start a business and that core financial tools such as business checking account or easy to access capital or even just business incorporation services should all be in one place and should be as easy as possible for uh, the future or potential business owner. And so how long did you go from being a gig driver to being CEO and founder of a startup? So I, you know, I, I left Square and I, I basically decided to just figure out what I wanted to work on next. And I think over the course of six to seven months, I was an entrepreneur residence at Kleiner Perkins. And, you know, throughout that seven month period, started researching and interviewing small businesses, started just with driving for these uh, gig platforms. But I'd probably say in that six, seven month period, started building what would be the, the, the MVP or the initial build out of what would then become Nearside. And so I think this was around January, 2019, when probably like seven months after I'd started on this journey, when I just put my foot down and said, okay, I'm going to start building this out 
and started near side. It's exciting. I'd love to zoom in on something you said about building the first version. I imagine a number of our listeners are wondering, how do you make a minimum viable product that's a bank account? Where can you (laughs) cut the corners? I mean, it's real money. You can't get it wrong. And it's got to have a bunch of features in order to make it useful. Where do you start? Yeah, you, you really can't cut corners when you are building a, a business checking account. And so for, for us, our MVP was really centered around, you know, business incorporation and providing term loans and, and, a, and a business line of credit. So as far as incorporation goes, you can file PDFs on behalf of a person. You can get, get them started really quickly. For term loans, you know, this is basically giving people money with the expectation that they pay you back with some interest rate. And so you could, in, in, in very limited cases and in, in uh, a couple of states, you can self-originate a business loan just to understand the, the sort of like use cases that business owners have. But really for a business checking account or uh, a business line of credit or a credit card, they're extremely regulated products that you, know, you, you really can't cut corners and skimp on. And so you know, the initial, from January, 2019, the initial like six, seven months was honestly building out that infrastructure, getting the partnerships in place with the card issuer and the partner bank, as well as our KYC and KYB vendors or ID verification vendors, fraud data vendors, everything up and running in order to, to basically stand up a, a sturdy bank account and business credit card. And so you have a number of products. I think of all of them as having existed before, Clearly, you've struck a nerve because you've been growing and getting lots of positive feedback. How do you think about competition and differentiation against those competitors? My sense on this, and and this is what I've told the team, is that I I genuinely don't believe that startups compete with one another, at least at this early stage. You know, if we genuinely believe there's 12 million incorporated small businesses and another 30 to 35 million solopreneurs, sole proprietors, people who have yet to start their business. And that's like last year's numbers. So that number can probably go up as we continue to see the great resignation or, or this, on, this continuing trend of people leaving their jobs to start their business. If we believe those numbers, which, which I genuinely do, then most startups are really just competing against obscurity. And you know our ability to operate and to grow at least today, is independent of worrying about our competitors, our competitors and uh, the competitive space. If I had to guess why people resonate to, uh, with Nearside and, and why people use our products, it's probably because we're able to provide all of them under one centralized roof. You know, the ability to incorporate your business and then after you know, minutes after you've incorporated your business, you get a business checking account that's in your name, in your business's name, is actually quite meaningful. And then as you operate and run your business on your side with the business checking account, you can get pre-approved for a term loan up to $20,000 in as little as you know, three to four months. So if we're all in the commodities business in fintech, then really the ability to provide these products under one roof as a unified product experience is actually materially easier for the user and for the small business owner. And I think anytime you provide an experience that saves time for the business owner, you've sort of defined on an ecosystem that is really compelling for them. That's great. Are there more people starting businesses these days? 
I think so. I, I think we, we, we saw that bump, you know, post COVID. I, I think it was something like on average 200,000 businesses incorporating a month to a high of 600 or 700,000 businesses in the, in the peak of 2020. Uh, but it settled down to around, you know, around half a million businesses incorporating or starting every month in, in this year. And so we've seen the sustained increase in people starting businesses as they realize that, you know, maybe their current day job isn't, isn't their life's calling. It's not the thing that they want to work on indefinitely. I think it's really hopeful news for our country and I hope it continues. I think so too. You know, like I think when, when you think about, and what I like about small businesses is that it even just touches on urban or suburban development where, you know, like to have a whole bunch of small businesses in a town or a city hints at financial stability and, and, and growth for everyone involved, you know, like in, instead of having one or two extremely large big box retailers, an ecosystem of hundreds of small businesses conducting commerce with one another, serving their communities, I think is a, is a really cool future that I, I want to help build if only because it also empowers and helps everyone who runs those small businesses, but then also the, the community of people who patronize these small businesses as well. Like put it this way, if you started a pizza shop and I buy pizza slice from you, wealth has been generated in that transaction. You know, like you've made money from this pizza slice and I've enjoyed the pizza slice from you. And I've paid for that convenience in lieu of making the pizza myself, which I may not know how to do, or you know, if I'm in a hurry or a rush and I just need to get lunch. And so small business owners basically convert time, effort, energy, and capital into wealth through these commercial transactions that ultimately help serve the local communities they work in. Yeah, I think it's exciting. You make a good case for entrepreneurship and for capitalism. I love the story of the baker, or it could be the pizza maker, right? Who's waking up thinking about your lunch before you're even thinking about lunch. <laughs> right. It's an amazing system we have. I think so. You know, it's like a, it's a localized version of capitalism that I think, you know, is a, is a, is a long-term sustainable version and one that provides a lot more wealth creation for the long tail of Americans here, you know, like serving Main Street, you know, is, is the sort of like quippy soundbite, I suppose. Right. Now you mentioned that you had worked at Block as a data scientist, and your previous startup was in churn, which I imagine was very data focused. How does your data science background help you at Nearside? It's a really good question. And I think a lot of that stems, or a lot of that flows into our approach to real-time fraud and risk assessment, right? Like I think, I think at Nearside, we, we adopt this sort of trust and verify approach, right? And so if as I mentioned, if we're all in the commodities business of providing checking accounts and loans, then the ability to originate a checking account more seamlessly and faster, like, you know, get approved for a checking account in 10 minutes is a very material advantage in the market, is a huge user value add because, you know, instead of taking a week to apply for an account, you can get approved at your side in 10 minutes. But underneath the hood is a ton of real-time fraud and risk assessment that occurs in order to get to that decision. And so the way we approach this in this trust and verify exercise, let's just say for illustrative purposes, you know, you're, you're running this pizza shop and you know, you've integrated your point of sale with Nearside and you, know, you use Nearside as your primary business checking account. 
including you know, depositing cash uh, deposits in one of our partner locations. If you say your pizza shop, in terms of the, the data that we can reasonably expect from your transaction, day-to-day transactions, you're probably open seven hours or seven days a week, maybe like 10 to 12 hours a day. Your average ticket size uh, is probably anywhere from like 10 to $15. And that's like you know two pizza slices and a, and a Diet Coke. And, and we can reasonably expect that, that average check size to occur maybe like six to 10 times an hour. Maybe it peaks to 20 times an hour during like uh, your, local, your, your local lunch hour, you know, which could be like you know, 12 to 2 p.m. Central time. So as this pizza shop, if you were to run a $5,000 point of sale transaction, or you have like a, you know, like a $9,000 credit from, you know, from, from someone at like 3 a.m., it, it could be the case that you are running like late night catering contracts with maybe a nightclub or something, but you might not be a pizza shop is, is the conclusion or the tentative conclusion as well. Right. So, you know, if, if instead of having eight to 10 transactions an hour, you have maybe like two or three transactions a day and they're all like $8,000 credits, that doesn't really feel like a pizza shop. And so the abstraction here is that anomalous behavior by business type and by stage of business allows us to rapidly assess whether you're actually running a genuine business and whether you're actually running the business that you say you run. Because a pizza shop will have a different kind of payments behavior and banking behavior than say a law office. Let's say you're running a legal office now. Those two to $3,000 credit transactions are within line. You know, like clients could easily pay that to, to have you facilitate their visa application or, you know, to have them have you check their, their, their financial accounts or their books or something like this. So every business will have sort of like probabilistic, uh, well, I, I could get science, like basically like probability density curves of, of how we have our normal behavior would look like. And so anything that's outside of those thresholds or those boundaries warrants a more careful, more manual review process. Does that mean that you're writing your own algorithms and systems for anti-money laundering and underwriting your loans? I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be a combination of off-the-shelf vendors and products in addition to our own systems, algorithms, and models. But yeah, like I think in, in order to, to truly realize this seamless, faster user experience, there's this concept that you know, risk is a first class product here at Nearside, that our approach to assessing fraud in real time and assessing um, risk in real time allows us not just to to be a good partner to our partner banks and uh, our card issuer and all of our vendors, but allows us to provide a, a better user experience to our users. Not only is it faster when you can do that in an automated way, but if you can do it more accurately, it drives costs out. And I think people often forget how much fraud is a cost component to financial services. Absolutely correct, right? Like it's a, it's a hidden tax that no one either thinks about or likes to think about. But I, I strongly believe that in order to stand up in an enduring financial institution or in order to stand up an ecosystem of products that ultimately serve the smallest of small businesses, you have to have a first-class risk strategy in, in order to succeed. And you were talking about how you were an entrepreneur in residence at Kleiner Perkins when you started the company, a mm-hmm. storied name in venture capital. 
Yet, you've also been public that you brought a lot of people in as investors in your business. Why the combination of exclusive venture capital with more broad-based investor strategy? Well, I mean, I think, you know, everyone, one of our values at Nearside is that it, it takes a village. And I'm extremely grateful to Kleiner Perkins, to Foundation Capital, and to, to Valar, our, our institutional backers, who've provided just a, a wealth of experience and insight. You know, like Kleiner Perkins invested in storied uh, tech companies. They all have, for example. And so, you know, what they provide me is deep insight into the tech industry in general, and then also in they've, they've got experience across economic cycles, which it's it's May 2020 right now. It's it's now becoming extremely prescient and important. What I find just as important from the broad-based angels and individuals who've invested in Nearside is that they also bring tactical experience, insight, and expertise, not just into building a startup such as ours, but expertise in, in building small businesses themselves. You know, one of our angel investors owns and operates Halal Guys franchise in the Bay Area. Another investor uh, operates a restaurant group in New York. And, and so understanding the plight of the small business owner requires us as tech employees to broaden our horizons and diversify our own inputs. And so I, I think when when we were trying to figure out, you know, what is the right investor mix of people with deep tech and fintech building, company building experience with people who have started small businesses and can easily be resources for us to tap when we build out our initial MVPs. And any tips for entrepreneurs when they're raising money to get that venture capital check? Do you have to sell your first business successfully in order to do it, especially to raise before you have a product? I, I don't think so. Like, I think the, I think that the two biggest things that have allowed me to fundraise or that have allowed me to serve small businesses have been to understand our users' problems and to quickly build or unblock ourselves from realizing that solution. And, and that's like a very broad, like set of two steps, but, but all, all this basically means is like, you know, can, as a founder, can I talk to users? Do I know who those users are? And do I know what those pain points are? And once I've understood those pain points from those users, how do I deliver a solution or a product that helps solve those problems? And, you know, a solution could just be consulting. It, it could literally just be your own time and effort to help them with whatever problem they had. And then you can abstract that manual solution into a scalable product, which will most likely be in software to allow for other people to self-serve onto that solution. I mean, YC more elegant, Y Combinator more elegantly describes this as like, talk to users and write code, right? And, and so the reason why the write code is there is because most likely the product or solution you're trying to deploy to your users at scale is going to require the internet and require some sort of like software solution. And so the ability to write code or rather the ability to partner with someone who can write code while whilst you are talking to users is extremely important for that initial MVP build out. So talk to users and write code may be what YC is saying, but I think I heard you say something in addition, 
which is maybe start serving customers before you have a product. That's absolutely correct, right? Like at the end of the day, most users will not care about the format of your product or your solution. They just care that someone else is helping them with their problem. And so going back to the small business owner, if you're a small business owner looking for business loan or like an initial line of credit, they, it's, it would help to have like a world-class user interface or a mobile app where they can apply and get approved in 10 minutes. But 90% of the value add for a business loan is the loan itself. It is the capital. It, the, the, like the money is actually the most important part of that product. And so the ability to lend money isn't necessarily tethered on, you know, how great your software is, but it's really tethered on, well, how do you get the money to these people? And then how do you underwrite and assess the credit worthiness of this business? And what's been the biggest surprise as you've been building the company? I think the biggest surprise has actually just been how patient our small business customers are. And the reason why I want to call that out is because I, I think we've got an amazing team, you know, like this, this world-class team of engineers, product designers, product managers, operations, credits, compliance, legal, you know, like everyone on your side is working as fast as humanly possible to build additional features and additional products. But to build something as fast as our own small business customers' needs is, is hard. You know, like today, a small business will want cash deposits and wires. And then tomorrow, they'll want like the ability to instantly deposit money. And so the dynamic nature of a small business, especially when they're extremely small, demands not just razor sharp focus and top of class speed of execution, but creativity on our small business customers' ends when, you know, we don't have a feature, but they still love using us that they figure out ways around it. Here, here's, a, here's a tactical example. You know, like one of our customers has been asking for a batch bill pay feature because they're, they send, you know, like 30 or 60 paper checks, 30 to 60 paper checks a month. We're, we're still working on that. And so what this user has, has taken to uh, in our own application is basically, you know, this person's basically built like a, a web automation script to just go into Nearside and do this themselves. And it's not ideal for either party, but the reason why this person does this is because they, they love the ecosystem, they can't imagine banking anywhere else. And so they're willing to put up a little bit of manual work on their end to work with a product that even though it's not ideal, it's still better than their alternatives. Well, that's when you know you're really serving customers and they love you, that they're just keep using the product and working around and pushing forward. I, I think that's right. You know, we, I, we, we've built a lot of goodwill with our customers and a lot of it not just stems from our ability to build additional features to serve them, but our ability to just engage with them as human beings. You know, the, the, the fact that they can talk to a, a, a human customer support agent or the fact they can just email me. You know, there's this drip email that everyone gets where it's like, this is my email address. It's thompsonetnearside.com. If you email me, I will reply to you. And that's still true today. I, uh, I, I, I believe at some point of scale, that'll get harder and harder and uh, maybe even be impossible. But as a startup, you know, we, we should be lucky to be able to engage in direct dialogue with our customers. And so whilst we still have the scale and the ability to do that, I'm going to do it.
Wow. So you're saying that every single one of your customers and the listeners of this podcast have an email address that they can send to that you personally read and respond to? That's correct. It, it might take a while, you know, like it's probably like a two to three week lead time, but it's, it's still part of my job to understand and, and talk to our customers. And, and so, you know, it, it, it may be as short as forwarding, acknowledging the email and then forwarding them to our customer support department or the right person who can help answer their question more, uh, more tactically. But it, it is something that I value a lot in terms of having this, this connection with our customers. And I think because we serve small businesses, it's, it's, it's a completely different user base size than say, like if we were serving, like if we were serving tens of millions of consumers as a consumer neobank, I, I'm not sure that strategy would be tenable, but because we're serving small businesses, it's a different order of magnitude scale that at least at this point in time allows me to engage with our customers directly. Yeah, that's a wonderful connection you're able to keep with people. How do you avoid it undermining your customer service or confusing people if they're waiting two weeks for you to get back and thinking, oh, customer service is slow? Yeah, the, the auto reply that they'll get is basically that you know, if it's a customer support issue, to work with customer support because they'll always get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. If it's more detailed product feedback where it's like, okay, I've resolved this issue with customer support and now I'm emailing Thompson because you know I, I want this feature to be in the next version of Nearside or in the next release, that, that makes a little bit more sense to send that email to me. But if, if the email looks like it's going to be sort of like a customer support issue, they do get guidance that, hey, you should, you should probably reach out to our human customer support team who can respond to you much, much faster than I can. Gotcha. Now you mentioned a world-class team. Any tips on how to recruit such a team? You know, I think some equation, some part of that equation involves hiring on slope and values. And so what I mean by slope is basically what is the trajectory of this individual? And, you know, is there hunger and drive to grow in their career? And does that hunger and drive align with the company's want to also grow? And, and so that's like the trajectory underwriting. There's a values underwriting with respect to, you know, another one of our values is grow the pie. And what we mean by that is that we, we do not treat our customers in an adversarial manner. Charging $30 for an overdraft fee could be an amazing high margin fee that we can implement and, and easily increase our, our bottom line. But it is a zero sum transaction that doesn't really help us and our customers grow the pie together. And so underwriting for those values, ensuring and making sure that people understand that we want to grow as fast as possible, as fast as our customers want to grow, but we want to do it in a way that's scalable and sustainable is actually a really important value. And the abstraction here is set of values that, that we underwrite on for our people. And so that's part of the equation, underwriting on trajectory and values. The, the other part is, is a team building exercise. You know, world-class teams are, aren't necessarily helicoptered into a company. They're, they're built and they're grown together. So even if you were to get amazing driven people who can succeed and people who have tenured experience in you know, FinTech companies or financial institutions, the, the world-class part doesn't necessarily come from the individual themselves, but it comes from the fact that we're all able to work together and that we're all able to work in synchrony. And so another one of our values is understand before being understood. 
I think in my entire sum of working in the tech industry, I don't think the hardest part about scaling startups is necessarily the code or the PRDs or the designs or the Google Docs and presentations. It's actually the people themselves. And that's not to say that the people are difficult. It's the synchrony and teamwork component of getting tens of people or hundreds of people to work together on the same project or the same product at the same time towards the same goal. And, and that is even, even more hard now that you know, we're remote first in, in a post-COVID workplace where m- most of the interface between myself and my coworkers are going to be through the screen. That, that humanizing value of understanding before being understood is even more important now. That's really inspiring. The focus on growing the pie and non-zero sumness is really powerful. I couldn't help but get a chuckle though that you've been talking about pizza this whole time and now you're talking about growing the pie. I wonder if you guys love pizza. (laughs) You know, I I haven't eaten anything today and so I I probably am just hungry, but I also like pizza and it's a a really apt analogy, but uh, yeah, you know, it's incidental, I guess. And you were talking about slope, so trajectory. How do you improve yourself and level up so that your trajectory is constantly improving? A lot of this for me is simply realizing that I, I am the sum of my professional and personal networks, right? Going back to a value I mentioned earlier in this interview, it takes a village, right? So, you know, if I've seen any professional success in this life, it's because of the support of my coworkers and people that I've all, everyone I've ever worked with here in this industry, but also the support of my village, my personal village, you know, my family, my friends, my partner, you know, th- these are people who have supported me to get me to where I am today. And, and what I find humanizing or humbling about that is that it also implies that I'm not done, right? Part of this macro optimism of growing the pie also means that our best years are ahead of us as a company and for me individually as a person. So once I acknowledge and admit that, then the exercise becomes, how do I improve at my job? How do I improve as a product builder, as a representative of this company, as the uh, person who interfaces or talks to small business owners on a daily, nearly hourly basis? You know, it's that almost like commitment to, to self-improvement and almost this like this bleak realization that, well, I'm not, I'm never going to be perfect, but the least I can do is continually improve and be self-aware and cognizant of what I'm not good at so that I can improve it. Any actionable tips for other people on how to do that kind of improvement? A lot of it is just checking in with people around you, right? Like I, I constantly and consistently seek feedback from everyone at the company, from my, my direct reports, from, from my staff, to everyone at the company, to, to our customers. And you know, seeking that feedback and exercising that professional vulnerability allows for folks to, to be candid and to be as truthful and as honest as possible, even if it's brutally honest. Because you know, if you sort of acknowledge that like all feedback is a gift, because people could just as easily also say nothing. <laughs> If I, if I start from the premise that any feedback rendered from a customer or a coworker is a gift, then demonstrating that I take it seriously, ensuring that they're heard, and that ensuring that I take actions to improve that incentivizes this feedback loop. 
So, you know, seek feedback from others is probably the tactical piece of advice, but then actually do something about it. And doing something about it could be, you know, disagreeing and committing, where it's just like, well, I, I acknowledge that, you know, uh, you've, you've flagged this as a character deficiency, but I don't think it is one. Even in that moment, you've at least actively acknowledged and have heard the person. That, that hasn't happened actually at all uh, during my time here at Nearside, but you know, I wanted to provide that example basically to say like uh, acknowledging hearing the other person is almost like half the battle here. Gotcha. So seeking the feedback, hearing it and taking action if you agree with it. Yeah, and it, it feels like such a basic concept as we're talking, but it can get really difficult you know, in the thick of it where you know, we're, we're focused on building features as fast as possible and we're focused on growing uh, you know, like a tech startup as fast as humanly possible amidst a, an economic downturn that it could feel overly wishy-washy to say like, oh, don't forget to check in with your people and make sure you're actively seeking feedback. But if you're not able to make that time for yourself, there's no way you're able to make time for the team or for the company or for your customers. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're remote first. When did you decide to do that? How did you decide? And what are the pros and cons? You know, we, we decided to be remote first, probably April of 2020. Uh, we, we, we closed the office sometime mid-March. And we, we realized that the world was going to be, at least the professional working world, was going to be permanently, profoundly different from that point on. And so we, we adopted this remote first strategy you know, probably, yeah, mid-2020. And, and since then, you know, we, we, we maintain small offices in a couple of cities where there's like concentration of employees, but we don't require people to come in. Most, actually, most of our company now lives outside of those WeWorks to the point where, you know, we'll, we'll probably start decommissioning them in the next quarter or two. But the way in which we're able to maintain this human connection is basically, you know, every quarter or so, a department will have a physical offsite where they'll meet in person. And then, you know, we're only three years old, but we've been guiding to like a, a yearly company offsite and, and, and meeting so that we still have that sort of like human connection and that we're able to, to celebrate everything we've done together. What have you seen as the downsides to doing this? I think it's harder to have like spur of the moment conversations to, you know, sort of sit down with someone and, and whiteboard a solution out because the whiteboard is now digital. And what does it even mean to sit down with someone? Is that like a Slack huddle? Is that like, okay, let me generate this Zoom link and then wait two minutes for you to come in. And then we're gonna fumble at our mics for 60 seconds while we get it all set up. The, the spontaneity is lost in that moment. And, and so it, it's been harder to have these like micro conversations and transactions of how to like get the last mile of a feature or a product. But the way in which we're able to account for that is to consciously book synchronous time, not too often, but just sort of like a catch-all where we meet and we say, like, is there anything that we haven't really talked about with respect to, you know, like uh, sending wires or check deposits that we'd like to figure out before we launch this? So being thoughtful about synchronous time, not just from a planning perspective, but you know, it's, it's weird to say plan spontaneity, but the ability to just like have a couple people in the room who are working on a, on a project and basically prompting, the prompt there is just, you know, what are we not thinking of? Or, or rather, what have you been thinking about that you haven't brought up yet? That's, what, that's how we've been able to kind of account for this 
loss of spontaneity or the sort of like loss of in the moment connection. Yes, I think that's right. Spontaneity. I also think building relationships in person once a quarter is very different than seeing someone more often. And I do wonder where the trade-offs are that we may not see uh, for a longer term, but certainly can hire people at much, you know, in many more locations and uh, the ability to collaborate and get things done is much higher than many people previously believed. I think that's right. You know, I think like the, the, the tech industry didn't end as a concept when everyone went remote first or remote only. I, I think there are proselytizers on both extremes, but I, I think the path that we forged ahead for ourselves works for us and it works for our specific culture, our specific market, our specific team, and our specific products. And so I, you know, I, I've always told our team to, to focus on what works for us and not over-rotate on current trends or what, you know, uh, proselytizers or what, what people are saying out in, uh, on like uh, social media or on uh, uh, articles. Well, thanks for sharing that. And the actionable tips on how to improve yourself by seeking feedback. Do you have any other broad tips or ideas for aspiring entrepreneurs out there? I think it can feel really daunting, especially right now, to start a company or to run headfirst into economic uncertainty when, you know, sort of like a, a, a job provides a lot more of that immediate stability. But if you if you come across a problem that you really care about and you have a clear line of sight of who your customer is and what it is you want to do to serve them, that, that could be such a fulfilling feeling that it'll help guide you with respect to building a product, serving customers, then ultimately building a company around that such that, you know, you, you never really remove the economic uncertainty, but you, you're able to at least forge a path ahead and, I think, you know, we, we come back to the, the mission of Nearside and, and this sort of mission of economic, socioeconomic mobile, mobility, you know, outside of going to a university and getting a, a white collar or a service sector job, small businesses are the majority route to socioeconomic mobility here in the United States. And it's a problem that's so close to me in my personal history and a problem that I really want to help solve so much the point where there there was only one path forward in terms of like the, the, there was you know if, if if i start from that premise and that's all i wanted to do at this current stage of my life then what are the next steps and and that can provide so much clarity with respect to what what you as a founder need to do next so i wouldn't necessarily start a company just to start a company but if you have a problem that you really want to solve maybe it's climate, maybe it's economic empowerment, maybe it's wealth disparity, figure out what it is you want to solve, figure out how you want to solve it and who the recipient of that product or service would be. And then at that point, you just have a lot of clarity in terms of what you then have to do next. Inspiring words. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me today. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential.
If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.